0: So, Jay, you know the Illuminati?
1: Not, like, personally or anything. Why?
0: Well, it's all good guys, right?
1: Um, that's debatable. I mean, Professor X is a member.
0: But they're all superhero types.
1: Yeah, I'll grant that.
0: But why? I mean, if the point is to save Earth from major cosmic threats, you'd think it'd make sense to include a few supervillain supergeniuses. They may want to take over Earth, but most of them aren't trying to destroy it. It's where they keep their stuff. Oh, no, the supervillains have their own club. Tell me its name isn't some play on darkness.
1: Oh, hey, I get it. Like, to contrast with Illuminati. Um, no, it's the Intelligentsia.
0: Okay, well, that's pretty fun. Who's on board?
1: The lineup has rotated some over the years, but it's included most of the guys you'd expect. So, Modoc, Sinister, Mad Thinker,
0: The Leader. Okay, solid, solid.
1: And Pacepot Pete. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 160 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, but
0: first, a few announcements. And they are really cool announcements, if you're the convention-going type, or the listening-to-recordings-of-convention-panel type.
1: Right. So, very soon, the second week of September, is it, or the first weekend second weekend of september we are going to be at rose city comic-con in portland oregon we are not going to be tabling but we do have two panels one of them is a live show for real um it's going to be awesome it's this one is going to be just the two of us it's going to be a little different from usual we recommend checking out the panel description on uh, the site and we'll link to that in the visual companion to this episode and we're hopefully also going to have a party this year but we're still working out the details there hopefully they'll be in place by the time we record this again check out the visual companion and if it's up we will have a link
0: And the awesome brand new news that we just found out today is that we apparently are also going to be doing a panel at freaking New York Comic Con.
1: Right. A lot of you have been asking. In fact, you've been asking for, you know, three years or so when we're going to do an East Coast live show. And the answer is this October. So we don't know what day yet. We are still waiting to hear back, but we have our panel confirmed. So you will be able to come see Jay and Miles explain the X-Men live at New York Comic Con. We're also still waiting for confirmation from our guests. Now that we know we're doing the panel, but um, if we can get the lineup, we we hope we will, or even at least half of it. It's going to be something pretty damn special,
0: for serious. Uh, but what we have for you right now is some X factors, specifically the last X factor that Louise Simonson ever wrote, and also a story we found that well, how would you describe it, Jay? It's quite something. It certainly is. Okay, well, regardless, what we should do first is tell you what's been happening previously on X-Factor.
1: So, X-Factor, that's the original five X-Men, as you may recall, the Cyclops, Jean Grey, who's currently Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and Angel, who is now Archangel, um, following some intervention by Apocalypse, are living in their sentient spaceship, which is currently set up in Manhattan as a skyscraper.
0: Now, X-Factor, just like all the other X-teams, just got back from the extinction agenda, which is to say, Genosha, where some horrible shit happened. X-Factor, however, came back relatively unscathed. I mean, at least physically. Psychologically, it was no fun for anybody.
1: Now that they're back in New York, X-Factor is also back with their supporting cast. The one who's going to be relevant here is a woman named Opal Tanaka. She's a record store clerk whom Bobby, Iceman, has been dating, Um, and she's great, But we're not going to talk about her yet. Now we are going to talk about a 1990 prestige format one-shot that takes place between issues 58 and 59 of X Factor, and it is called Prisoner of Love.
0: It certainly is. Now, you mentioned it was a prestige format one-shot, so basically what that means is it's a longer-than-usual, fancy, nicely-bound one-shot. Well,
1: specifically, it's perfect-bound. It's bound like a book.
0: I love it when they call something perfect-bound. It implies that it's bound as well as it could possibly be.
1: That is absolutely a lie a fair amount of the time.
0: Okay, I should just start calling things in my own life perfect. Maybe people would believe me. Oh, it could be like Perfect Sierra. You remember from The Judgment War on X-Factor? I loved her. Oh yeah, Perfect Sierra. She was the one who was friends with
1: ZZ-105 featuring ten straight hours of tonal static.
0: Oh man, I knew ZZ-105 would be back for us one day. I knew it, Jay!
1: ZZ-105 will be back right after these messages, with 24 hours of smooth jazz hits punctuated by sounds of the seashore.
0: Well, anyway, we are far away from the Judgment War and far away from ZZ-105, because we are in Prisoner of Love. Uh, and Prisoner of Love is by a different creative team than we're used to.
1: Now, Miles mentioned that we're going to be looking at the last couple Louis Simonson issues— Prisoner of Love is not written by Louis Simonson, even though it's set somewhat earlier in the series. It is written by Jim Starlin and drawn by Jackson Geis. Jackson Geis, if you don't remember, was actually the OG X Factor artist started
0: the series along with Bob Layton. And I gotta say, Jackson Geis' art, it's really, really evolved. We saw a little bit of that in the one Days of Future Present Annual that he did, but here it's even more on display.
1: Yeah, it kept on reminding me of something, and I was having a huge amount of trouble placing it until you mentioned Milo Manara. And it's got a little bit of that. It's got a bit of Kelly Jones. Some of that is Geis, and more as much of it, I think, is the colorist, um, who's really, really distinctive here in doing some what what looks like marker colors, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, whatever it is, it's all these very soft, textured, almost pastel tones that suit the story really well.
1: It's a coloring style I associate very much with Marvel graphic novels, and actually it kind of surprised me that this wasn't one, because tonally it feels like it would fit very well in that line as well.
0: Totally agree,
1: yeah. So... Prisoner of Love sounds like a romance. It's not really. It's basically a supernatural noir story. And that's a thing we've seen played with on and off in X books um, all the time with Wolverine. Yeah, we, we saw Havoc sort of try on the genre and melt down and not do very well at it. We've seen Angel <laughs> all over the place with this. Um, but I think it's the first time Beast has gotten his turn in the slouchy fedora and internal monologue.
0: And I think that works really well, because at this point in Beast's continuity, he's really having a hard time with the fact that he's blue and furry again after looking human for a while. Like, he's still our happy-go-lucky bouncing blue beast, but there's a lot of angst there, as he sees, you know, some of his friends able to pass as human and realizes that he never can.
1: You know, it's funny, when this story started, I thought it was pretty much going to be a story about passing and about, you know, Beast's identity as a mutant, because it's very much set up as that early on, you know, identity, social stuff.
0: But instead, it's about crystal love vampires. And boy, howdy, will we ever get to that?
1: All right. So first of all, you know, speaking of vampires, again, I, I mentioned that, that we've seen a lot of noir. This also rehashes a motif that I feel like we've covered a lot lately in X Factor. We saw it in 4 and 20 Blackbirds, the infectia arc, um, and a bit of, you know, Gossamer and the New Mutants. But yeah, it's, it's an old trope, and it's one we've seen come up kind of again and again over the last year of coverage, at
0: least. Right, this sort of sexy femme fatale alien-slash-magic-person-slash-whatever.
1: With some sort of manipulative powers, who needs something specific, and somehow mutants are special and can give it to her where humans couldn't.
0: Now, as we open, Hank's been having a real rough day. I mean, a danger room session went badly, and he's decided to take the rest of the day off.
1: Uh, for some introspection and also some wry and cynical asides, you know. After all, I'm only human.
0: Sort of. Oh, poor Hank McCoy.
1: Yeah, so he lingers around ship a little bit for a brief depressing interlude, watching Gene with Nathan Christopher and pondering the complications and, in his head, the impossibility of ever having a kid of his own. That strikes me as really weird. I kind of want to talk about that scene because it doesn't make a lot of sense in context of the Hank we've seen. First of all, he thinks that his blue fur and so forth would be hereditary, which, again, that's an artificially brought on mutation.
0: Well, for one thing, that's something that uh, the comics have always kind of gone back and forth on. I mean, sometimes it's fully artificial, sometimes it's a tendency within Hank that was just waiting to be awakened and was sort of there the whole time. That certainly is something that the comics have been going for more lately with the various different blue beast forms.
1: But all of them would have been triggered by his initial meddling and have been set off by other external stuff. You know, actually, here's a question. Does Hank have any biological children in any timelines? Because I can't think of any. I can't really think of any either. I
0: mean, I'm sure there are some out there, and someone will uh, kindly contribute their names on the uh, comments to this episode, but I don't think so. And
1: somehow they're also Summerses?
0: They're probably also Summerses, and they, they also all disguise themselves as Eric the Red.
1: And at the same time, you know, with regards to the question of his appearance and whether anyone would even want to have kids with him, again, this is a place where Hank has historically been his own harshest critic. I mean, girls pretty consistently dig him.
0: I mean, he's a charismatic, clever, fuzzy blue guy. Like, what's not to love, right?
1: Well, we're saying that, you know, in an appreciative we like the character way, but also he's a guy who women consistently hit on, who regularly has girlfriends, and especially during this era, you know, a lot of of his self-deprecation is based, as far as I can tell, on sort of an internalized sense of what the world should be like to him or what he thinks it should be, not what he's actually experiencing, which is kind of sad. So anyway, Hank dresses up in a trench coat and fedora and takes a walk to clear his head, at which point the story takes a sharp left into what the fuckville.
0: And what we see in What-the-fuck Land is a character who I'm pretty sure is straight out of a Mobius comic. Like, she's got this pink pointy hat and she's holding a glowing box that's partway open. Like, she looks like somebody straight out of the ankle and I am beating myself up over not being able to recognize her.
1: Yeah, I mean, she looks like it. Again, I can't place her either- and she doesn't have any bearing on the actual story that we're, we're looking at here, I should say. She's just sort of there as an easter egg. But Hank is meandering along, having feelings through the streets of New York, when he hears some possibly nefarious business going down in an alley.
0: It's a gang of young toughs menacing a frail. This being a P.I. story.
1: Yeah, that's not a quote. We just decided that obviously that's how you describe this scenario.
0: Jay, what would the story be like if we had, like, continual P.I. noir narration? Would that be better or worse?
1: I think it would probably be better, but honestly, I do not have the time to learn the lingo and to translate all of my notes, so you're going to have to just imagine it, listeners. Or actually, you know, I'm going to say the story is confusing enough that maybe keeping it simple is a better approach. It's still going to be nonsense, but you'll at least be able to recognize it as nonsense and not the nonsense as a product of us attempting to speak in a jargon that we don't know
0: well. Exactly. Well, Hank being Hank, he intervenes.
1: Right, and now— He also learns that the girl did something to the brother of someone named Joey, and now the guys who are cornered want revenge. He doesn't know what, they don't say what. And Hank is immediately smitten with the girl and her irrepressible 80s hair.
0: And he's doing pretty well for himself. He's happy again. He's saving someone, saving an innocent from crime, until he gets hit in the head with a brick. And the
1: last thing he sees is a descending crowbar before waking up on a couch in a weirdly sparse apartment Empty save for him and the woman he saved in the alley.
0: She introduces herself as Cynthia Nape. Now, that's Cynthia with an S, but still S-Y-N. Is it about sin? Is it just a funny spelling? We'll never know.
1: Yeah, I, I was trying to figure that out, and whether it's an anagram for anything, and I ultimately gave up.
0: Well, regardless, Cynthia, I gotta say... With Jackson Geis' art, she is legitimately gorgeous. She kind of reminds me of a Barry Windsor Smith drawing, like something out of Life Death. There's a a certain quality to the texture of her dress and her hair. Like, everything just feels very tactile. I mean, you should ask permission of a comic book character before touching them, of course. But it feels like if you did, then it would be much more three-dimensional than comics art usually is.
1: Yeah, the coloring and the shading on this is very, very textured, and that comes across especially in, in fibers and things like fabrics and hair, I think. You see the same with, with Beast when you see close-ups. You actually, like, his, his clothing and his fur look really, really realized. So Cynthia is peculiar in more ways than one. Not only is she, you know, beautiful, but she describes herself as...
0: A stranger to this... town...
1: And the long pause before town, if you are familiar with any science fiction whatsoever, you will recognize as literally always meaning, from space.
0: Oh right, that's why you were asking what the alien tests from Space Geeks and Johnny Unitas from The Adventures of Pete and Pete were.
1: Right, because if Beast knew those, he would be able to cut through the heart of this mystery immediately, but clearly he doesn't.
0: I mean, it would be a much shorter comic that way, you wouldn't get as much bang for your buck.
1: Right, and I tried to remember, I know one of them has to do with balancing on one foot because you'd be unused to Earth's gravity. I don't remember what the rest are, um, but basically, you won't get an absolute, you won't be able to triangulate your results, but if if an attractive woman meets you in an alley and you next wake up in her place with no memory and she uses I'm from outer space cue, have her stand on one foot and ask her what she thinks about Johnny Unitas, and you can get at least some sense of whether she's either from space or familiar with the brilliant Nickelodeon TV show The Adventures of Pete and Pete.
0: And they say comics don't give you practical skills.
1: It's not a comic. It's a TV show.
0: Well, right, but we're discussing a comic. Therefore, that's the window through which the listeners are hearing about the TV show unless they've already seen it, in which case they already know.
1: But the practical skills come from the TV show.
0: I suppose, pedant.
1: That's literally our job. (laughs)
0: Fair point
1: Whether or not she's from space, Cynthia is moving awfully fast She immediately tells Beast that their souls have touched And that she knows their kindred spirits And Hank's clearly into it But there's also pretty clearly some mind control going on And the dialogue is just creepy as all hell
0: I am the woman you've searched for all your life I am the loving heart that will drive off the dank and lonely night What I say is true, is it not? Every word And you are just what I most need.
1: Now, what Cynthia needs, as it turns out, is a protector, which doesn't go into details. They kiss, and the next thing Beast knows, he's waking up again, this time in a huge, empty bed. And I think now is a good time to talk about the art in this comic, beyond the figures, because I think the art is a lot of what makes this story work. And, well, okay, maybe less the story than the atmosphere and some of the motifs in it, because the story itself is, is kinda nonsense. But... Geist does a great job of making everything feel kind of disconnected. And I'm going to use this word with the qualifier that I'm using it because it's the one that fits best for what I'm trying to say, uncanny. Um, (laughs) Cynthia seems kind of dreamlike and she doesn't move quite right. Her posture and body language and her spoken language are always a bit off and notably very vague. And the way she moves through space and relates to space in her big, just too sparse apartment And the way the figures interact in the space and then within the panels is just a little bit unnerving. By the same token, having this be a comic rather than a short story or a video, A, gives us those environments and that weirdness without having to describe it so we get to sense it for ourselves, but B, makes the time jumps a lot more effective. And that's something that's really critical to this story. Because Hank is essentially trapped for most of the story in a sort of a perpetual twilight cycle of sleeping and waking, and weird makeouts, and even more vague proclamations from Cynthia.
0: Right. I mean, I always go back to Mrs. Janoff, our high school English teacher. We all wanted to write like Kerouac, but she said that we needed to know the rules before we broke them so that we could break them effectively. And I feel like that's what Jackson Geis is doing here. Like the way you described him drawing Cynthia's body language is totally off and weird. Drawing this apartment as being too large and the angles as being strange. It's all very deliberate.
1: Yeah, there are there are frames and there are panels where the figures and faces are doing things that people would be doing in a romance comic. And the body language is there, but the framing of the panel or the perspective are just a little bit off. And it's terrific because it's simultaneously familiar cues, but just diagonal of normal in ways that make them very unsettling. It's like going into a room and discovering that all of the furniture has been rotated like 20
0: degrees. Oh man, that would be a weird prank to play on someone. Please don't ever do that to me.
1: I think the classic is moving everything three inches. But um, anyway, time in here, time in this space is is really disjointed. Time no longer quite seems to matter. And in fact, Cynthia keeps insisting that only feelings matter. She's acting really strange during Hank's brief bits of lucidity. At one point, um, she offers him unimaginable pleasure and then immediately bites his hand hard enough to break the skin. Because why the hell not?
0: And one thing I really like about this, I mean, you see somebody, especially a sexy lady who seems to have weird powers, biting someone, you're thinking vampire, right? Like, you're thinking those two little fang dots? And no, it's just normal human teeth, these little red marks, and that makes it a lot creepier for me.
1: Oh, it's super fucking creepy. It's so weird. So, speaking of creepy things, during the time he's there, between, you know, waking up at disjointed intervals, Hank has two notable nightmares—
0: Right, so the first one is about an alien landscape and a weird, protean, starfish-looking monster that Hank identifies as a dark one, and which then prowls New York, poorly disguised as a human.
1: So what I keep wondering when I read that scene is whether that's supposed to echo Hank's earlier disguise.
0: Honestly, I don't know. I mean, as much as we're talking up the art in this story, the plot itself is sort of, um... I don't know if incomprehensible is the right word, but certainly unclear. It's
1: nonsense. It's an exercise in tone rather than in story. And um, it's, worth, or it's worth reading, I think, just for what Geist does with the medium. Um, the actual writing is really consistently unremarkable in it. So the other nightmare happens um, after Hank wakes up a little more together than usual, realizes that X-Factor's probably worried sick about him, and coincidentally sees Archangel flying past tries to get to the window to yell to him, but Cynthia stops him.
0: Right, and Hank has this vision, and this one reminds me a lot of Xavier's vision when he's being mind-controlled in God Loves Man Kills. Yeah,
1: I was thinking of that, too.
0: Right, so, like, it's all of X-Factor, but they have crazy vampire faces, and they're looking really evil, and they have Cynthia hung naked upside down. Well, naked sometimes. Once the panels get close in, she's suddenly wearing things. I have a feeling those were last-minute edits. And they're all about to murder her, so Hank saves her from them like a hero.
1: And... Within a few days Cynthia has become in Hank's words his whole world. Yeah, that's
0: not so great. But the dialogue, I mean, we talked about how the plot doesn't work so well. The dialogue here kind of does. I kind of want to do this little bit.
1: But I'm still your prisoner, aren't I?
0: Aren't we all prisoners to something?
1: You're slave, and there's nothing I can do to break the chains that bind me
0: because you find the chains comforting, they're of your own making. You're evil. I'm beyond good or evil. I simply am.
1: Will I survive this passion?
0: I'm not sure either of us will.
1: First of all, that doesn't make any sense because it's not doing anything to her. Hank is getting progressively weaker and weaker as the days go past, and it's obvious Cynthia's doing something to him, but it's unclear what.
0: Well, it becomes clear eventually because she does, uh, after a little bit of time passes, give him the story, and what a story it is!
1: Yeah, um, so as it turns out, long story short, Cynthia is from an ancient cosmic race, and she's being hunted by the quote-unquote Dark One, who's part of another ancient cosmic race that hates light and pleasure and all but wiped out her people.
0: Right, you know, just the usual, uh, almost Shakespearean story, a tale as old as time. And Cynthia has been living off humans. Uh, She assumed they were Earth's dominant species.
1: But she reassures Hank she's only going after the ones who would serve the Dark One. And the implication is she's some kind of energy vampire, but she stays very vague about this, so it's possible that she's just, like, eating their toes or something.
0: I don't know. I just figured she was gently biting all of their hands and making creepy little tooth marks and then letting them go on their way. Here's
1: the thing about that tooth mark. I assumed that it would somehow be directly relevant to the story, and it's not. I mean, there's a callback later, but yeah,
0: you never really get a feel for what exactly she's doing to Hank. I mean, we see him passing out all the time, so I'm sure that's related. But it is nicely vague, and I like that. It lets us imagine what's going on. Adds to the creep factor.
1: Yeah, again, this is a great exercise in atmosphere, and Geis is doing a great job framing it in a way that really, really evokes noir cinematography, and a lot of the transitions and a lot of the the angles in that. But, um, again, not the most sensible story. So anyway, she was feeding off humans. And then she met Hank in the alleyway and was like, dang, because A, he's somehow extra special energy-wise in ways that are unclear, um, but she also can't sense him, which means presumably that the Dark One won't be able to either.
0: Do you feel like we're just expected to take about 98% of this story completely on faith just to see what Cynthia says and just go, yeah, okay, that makes sense.
1: I feel like we are essentially Hank in this. We are being told weird shit and it's just being assumed that we will or should go along with it, Jim Starlin is functionally the Cynthia of this story,
0: relative to the reader. We're just along for the ride, which— Oh, wait, Jay, do you think that means that Jackson Geis would draw us? Because, I mean, I mean, we look pretty cool in real life, but we would look, like, way better if Jackson Geis drew us. Here's
1: the question. Would it be worth being bitten by Jim Starlin?
0: I don't know. That's a tough one. What do his teeth look like?
1: And if he bites you, do you turn into him? Or one of him?
0: We could be a were-starlin?
1: Yes, you could be a were-starlin.
0: But only on the full moon. Then we would have very confusing dialogue. It would be great. Well, anyway, I think we may be digressing. Or have we hit the most important part?
1: Either way, Cynthia has presumably been feeding off of Hank, although she never officially confirms it. Which might be killing him, or which he thinks is killing him. But she keeps on saying, no, no, it's all just feelings. Which sounds like bullshit to me, and also feelings are terrible. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well apparently they're good for something or are they it's really hard to say how things are connected but that dark one the weird starfish that also maybe an ugly looking dude in a trench coat yeah he is preparing to show up and cynthia is going to use hank as her champion as her secret weapon
1: she gives him all of these esoteric rules that are very much when you visit the land of fairy type things like only focus on the dark one because if you look at the backgrounds of the pages you'll go mad and indeed the pages get trippy as hell And specifically, they get trippy as hell in ways that remind me intensely of that one episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends where they get lost in the X-Mansion.
0: Oh god, you're right. I mean, I was thinking like Inception or the Doctor Strange movie, but the Spider-Man X-Men episode is a way better example. That was the one where Thunderbird had the power to turn into a bear for some reason. Which we
1: all know is the best superpower.
0: It's pretty great, unless you're a bear who can turn into a naked man, like Ursa Major. Oh, that's true. Well, um, anyway, so we don't see Ursa Major here. He's presumably off-panel somewhere with the rest of the X-Men and Kitty Pride in her off-brand costume and Spider-Man and Firestar and Iceman.
1: But anyway, Hank also doesn't see them because he is only looking at the Dark One. And finally, as Cynthia looks like she's in dire peril, he manages to take out the Dark One and get a glimpse of Cynthia's true form, which is basically a big fancy crystal.
0: I really like the way this works because it's almost like it's a crystal landscape. Like it's I don't I don't know, some kind of a like a screensaver from the nineties come to life.
1: Oh dude, yeah, she looks like something from the Star Trek screensaver pack.
0: <laughs> right. And it's this nice full page spread and you really do get both the awe and utter bafflement that Hank is feeling. That comes through nicely in the art.
1: I mean to be fair awe and utter bafflement are about the appropriate responses to the comic as well, which kind of supports my case of Hank as the reader's stand-in, or at least, at least of Hank's relationship to the story being the reader's relationship to the comic. So anyway, Cynthia remanifests for a moment as, as an attractive woman to say goodbye, and Hank wakes up in the alley where he originally met her. Just in time for a major plot twist.
0: Right, he does the, you boy, what day is it, kind of thing, and apparently no time at all has passed ever since he fell unconscious when he got hit in the head with a
1: brick. Or did he, because he's got no bruises or anything, so it was just a dream, except for one thing. He still totally has tooth marks in his hand from where Cynthia bit him.
0: It's the hickey of destiny!
1: And that's the end, thank god. Um, it's not the end of Cynthia, though, she's gonna show up later in a Silver Surfer comic.
0: And I'm just gonna quote UncannyXmen.net here, because I could not phrase it better. In her next and final to date appearance, the Eternal of Titan known as Starfox will confront her in outer space and be infatuated with her, only for Cynthia to reject his affections and reveal her true crystalline form in order to repel him.
1: I'm pretty sure Starfox would fuck a crystal.
0: I'm pretty sure Starfox would fuck a crystal. It wouldn't even have to be a person crystal. It could just be one he, like, picked up at some roadside attraction.
1: With that, let's go back to X-Factor proper with X-Factor 63 titled, Family.
0: So, creative team wise, this issue is notable for a couple of reasons. The first is the new artist, who's gonna be not only the artist on X Factor for the next handful of issues, but a big deal in Marvel going forward and eventually one of the founders of Image, and that is Wils Portasio. And I had to look up how to pronounce his name. I found a nineteen nineties video of Stan Lee interviewing him, and I gotta say Stanley just talks like Stanley all the time. Like he always sounds like he's trying to sell you a car. Was he? Uh, I didn't get that far in the interview. I just heard how he said Wills Portasio. Are you sure that he pronounced it right? I mean, Wills didn't say anything, but then again, maybe he wouldn't. I mean, it is Stanley. Would you
1: correct Stanley?
0: I'd be worried he would just sell me a car. I mean, whether I wanted one or not.
1: Well, obviously, if you didn't, he would just say that you did, and you wouldn't have the heart to correct him, and so you'd end up with a car.
0: Well, anyway, Wills Portacio, I really like his art. Like, it's a little less tight and consistent than, say, Jim Lee's or even Mark Silvestri's, but it's pretty expressive. It's pretty engaging. He's got a good sense of how to visually tell a story and make it interesting. He's
1: very clearly from the the Mark Silvestri school of art, and that's okay for the most part. I've got some major objections my most significant of which is that he draws Opal Skinny.
0: Yeah, he does, it's true. That's almost as bad as when people draw Squirrel Girl Skinny.
1: I hate that. You know what is worse than either of those, though? What's when that? people fucking draw Big Barda Skinny. Why would you do that? She's made of, like, muscle and giantness. I know! She should have Kirby Lady proportions. She should have, like... She should credibly be able to throw literally anyone else in any panel she appears
0: in. For serious? Well, anyway, Will Portasio, he's interesting creative change number one. And number two, like we mentioned earlier... These two issues are the last that Louise Simonson will do for X-Factor, and in fact, the last that she will do for Marvel for a very, very, very long time.
1: This is sort of a, a not-with-a-bang-but-a-flutter exit, um, I gotta say, because she is, she's a writer whom I love for the most part, and whose run on X-Factor is definitive to my sense of the X-Men, and especially of the original five. But man, the
0: Cyber-Eye. They sure are. You know what? I remember them being called Cyber-Eye in this arc, and they're mostly not, and that makes me sad, but I'm gonna keep calling them Cyber-Eye, goddammit. Well, it's even
1: funnier in the arc, because they're called cyberpunks.
0: There's nothing punk about them.
1: I mean, no, no, they've sort of got a transhumanist thing going on. They're souped up a bit, like the Reavers, but they're not the least bit punk.
0: Well, anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves, because where we open is with Iceman and Opal Tanaka walking to their reservations at her fancy birthday dinner.
1: And she notices as they walk a couple who look like her parents and briefly panics. She explains to Bobby that she was just recently sent papers that show she's adopted from Japan, that her parents or the people she's known as her parents, her adoptive parents, who are her parents for all practical purposes, come on, have actually lied to her while telling her that honesty is the most important value ever.
0: Yeah, and we saw her get those papers a few issues ago in X-Factor before the Extinction Agenda started, so she's been sitting on this for a while, clearly troubled. To
1: be fair, we don't know that she's been sitting on this for a while. I mean, Bobby's been out of town in Genosha at a crossover event. It's not like she's been evading him.
0: Well, right. I just mean sitting on it, like by herself, as opposed to having him help her sit on it. Because maybe it'll get back up if there's not enough people sitting on it.
1: But before they can figure out whether tonight is going to be about celebration or feelings, and we all know from Prisoner of Love that feelings are terrible, they are interrupted by a crackle pop.
0: Hey, it's the Rice Krispie Elves. Or, you know, a version of them. Or, you know, cybernetic samurai, which is to say cyber So
1: the Rice Krispie Elves is what you're saying?
0: Right, but like with metal armor and cool haircuts and dragons on their faces.
1: So the Rice Krispie Elves...
0: Well, these Rice Krispie Elves armor is shiny purple, and they have these sort of rising sun-looking logos on their midsections, and yeah, dragon face tattoos because it's 1991, and that's the coolest thing in the world, is Cyber Yakuza.
1: This is one of the more culturally uncomfortable fads of the 90s, although honestly... That kind of goes with Marvel's version of Japan in general, and I would really at some point like to get an, an expert who can speak to that more directly culturally than either of us can. But man, these, yeah, these guys are part of, part of a not-so-great tradition in terms of, of a very narrow uh, representation of, of Japan in Marvel, which unfortunately has been continuing into their TV universe.
0: Oh, yeah, I've only seen the first season of Daredevil, but from what I understand, The Hand become a bigger and bigger deal, so I can see that. And, of course, you know, Iron the Fist. The best
1: commentary I have seen on The Hand in Daredevil is, Imagine if Daredevil were a series about a Japanese lawyer, and there's a corrupt American company, and when he tries to break in, he has to fight, like, 600 cowboys.
0: I mean... I suppose I should be considering the social implications of that and how it works as a metaphor, but now I'm just thinking of a lawyer fighting a bunch of cowboys and I love everything about it.
1: Yeah, no, it would be hilarious, but it's the same level of dumb as fuck.
0: (laughs) I suppose that's true. Well, uh, anyway, we don't have any cowboys here, unfortunately, but we do have the Cyber Eye and they quickly attack Bobby and Opal and throw Bobby through the freaking window, which shatters outward and he falls and they're on like the millionth story, so that's no good. The way that whilst Portasio draws,
1: everything that has small fragments or details looks techno-organic, which was a little bit
0: confusing at first. Yeah, it looked like it was the freaking phalanx or something. I'm like, was there a phalanx dude disguised as the window? Because that would actually be pretty clever now that I think about it. Were they hitting
1: him with shards of something cybernetic or just throwing him through a window? It doesn't matter because he's busy falling to his death. He's out of the picture for now
0: unfortunate well with that out of the way the cyberai tell opal that they are going to take her to her grandfather the dragon lord lord tatsuo is he
1: actually a dragon no
0: They just call him that. I think they think it sounds cool. But this was really confusing to me, I remember, when I was a kid, because we have Lord Tatsuo here, and at the same time introduced not very long ago at all is Lord Matsuo, another crime lord. He's, you know, one of the upstarts. He was involved in Psylocke getting transformed, and he was responsible for transforming her into her ninja, undeterminately, generically Asian form.
1: I'm still hung up on the dragon thing, because I feel like getting kidnapped and dragged to the grandfather you never knew you had in Japan— would suck, but finding out that he was an actual dragon would really take the edge off.
0: Right, at that point, you have some sort of Harry Potter overtones. I mean, this is a scary thing, but hey, magic. This is a scary thing, but hey, dragon grandpa. Yeah,
1: like, it would be awful, but also really fucking rad. Unfortunately, Tatsuo, again, is not actually an actual dragon, which is a goddamn shame.
0: Well, what's not a shame is that Bobby is actually alright, and in a truly sweet panel that Portasio draws, we see him waking up in midair, transforming into ice, and then dropping an ice slide underneath him and sliding to safety, and it's like the same panel, you see all three versions of Bobby, it's really freaking cool yeah, it's, looking. Yeah, it's a good
1: transition. And he heads to X-Factor, who are in their snazzy new uniforms, and decides that he is going to go off and try to find Opal's adoptive parents.
0: Okay, let's talk about these uniforms a little bit, Jay, because I know you have big-time feelings about X-Factor uniforms, so these are like blue body suits with big yellow Xs over them. This time it's the same color scheme for everyone, which it's never been, but the Xs extend on their legs and their arms, and they're a little bit more 90s looking, and their hair sticking out of their weird head sock facial buttress things. What do you think?
1: I am against facial buttresses, and I really like the different colored variations on a theme uniforms for X-Factor, especially because people tend to draw Scott and Bobby with similar proportions and color their hair the same. So having different colored costumes, even slightly, makes it a lot easier to tell them apart from the back.
0: I would agree, yeah. I mean, these do look snazzy, but having that individual character distinction works better. I mean, Bobby's in his ice form a lot of the time.
1: In general, though, I'm a really big fan of variations on a theme team costumes. Ones that have connected design elements that are obviously part of the same group, but allow for individual customization. I I think that that's pretty much always the direction to go, especially when you have a team as physically varied as X Factor.
0: Uh, My favorite example of that that I can think of right now is actually different versions of the same characters. It's the costumes that the X-Men blue team are running around in right now. They look so good! Those are
1: sharp, yeah. I think um, the new X-Men Academy X did that pretty well too.
0: Oh yeah, it totally did, you're right. Well- Costumes aside, uh, Bobby does indeed go to find Opal's adoptive parents, the Tanakas. And I gotta say, they're surprisingly chill for almost getting knocked the hell over when he ice slides up out of nowhere.
1: I mean, he and Opal have been dating for a while. I I assume that they've gotten used to it, or that they just live in New York and have been watching the news and know that X-Factor just wrecks shit all the time.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. They're very inadvertently destructive heroes, they just don't care. Can
1: be like... Oh, our daughter's dating this nice young man, and he's a mutant, and that's fine, but we really wish he'd learn to use doors.
0: Right? Or at least not let his ice slides melt everywhere. I mean, we've had to buy, like, 400 Sham Wows, and they're pretty good, but they can only absorb so much. Oh, God. (laughs) No one ever thinks about that. When those things melt, it would freaking flood the whole city block.
1: I mean, I think about that, because that's the kind of thing that I think about. It's not just that it would flood the whole city block, because it wouldn't be that much water melting, because ice has more volume than water, but in a house or something? That would be so awful.
0: Oh, you'd get like mold everywhere because it would never fully dry out. That would be terrible.
1: Right. You'd need need somewhere like ship if you're going to be making ice slides indoors.
0: Well, the Tanakas clearly aren't concerned with the many logistical impracticalities of their daughter dating Iceman. So they invite Bobby in and they tell him the whole tragic story. Basically, they took an opal who was actually a distant niece of theirs to keep her safe after they couldn't save her birth mother in Japan. Now, they're pretty vague about this whole thing, but don't worry. Louise Simonson will fill us in a little bit later.
1: They also recognize the insignia that Bobby has gotten off of one of the cyber samurai as belonging to the crime family led by Opal's grandfather. So Bobby's now got a lead, and he heads back to X-Factor and declares that he is heading off to Japan, and he's going to go check it out. And he doesn't need help. He can do it on his own, damn it, because he's a grown-up, and they are not his dad, and he doesn't listen to his dad anyway.
0: Now... I realize this was not intended at the time, but we've talked a lot about how Bobby's behavior in this era can often feel like overcompensating. And I kind of wonder if you could read what's going on now as basically that. What do you think?
1: Um, yeah, but not in the sense that you're thinking of. I think Bobby is a character who, during this era especially, but periodically, feels like he has a lot to prove as a hero you know, that his powers aren't as impressive as the the ones around him. He's the one who's the youngest of his primary team, who's treated like a kid a lot, who acts like a kid a lot, and who I think is kind of seen as as the irresponsible tag-along a lot of the time. So when we see him dive into stuff like this, it's less about, you know, hey, look, I'm straight, even though it's his girlfriend in this context, than, hey, guys, I'm legit, I can do this myself.
0: I think you're right. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. But thankfully, he doesn't have to do it himself, because- Jean Grey decides that she is going to come along, too, that he really needs a hand. And this is kind of cool because we barely ever see the two of them interact.
1: Um, Unfortunately, including in this story, which is a shame because they're characters who don't really have much of a one-on-one dynamic at this point, and it would be nice to see that developed further. Almost all of the members of the team in other combinations really do. And again, Jean and Bobby just rarely end up paired up on missions or teaming up like this. So it would be nice for them to have more chance, you know, and not just have sort of Jean trailing around after him to clean up his messes, which is what ends up happening.
0: His wet, mildewy messes.
1: Oh, God. No, not really. No, she doesn't clean those up.
0: Yeah, she doesn't get paid enough for that.
1: No one gets paid enough for that.
0: Back in Japan, Opal has been dressed very traditionally uh, by her grandfather, and this kind of reminds me of when the Mandarin kidnapped Jubilee back in Madripoor, and Jubilee was just having none of it, and similarly, Opal is not a fan of, you know... Being dressed by somebody else, being kidnapped by somebody else.
1: And then being you know, betrothed by somebody else, because Tatsuo's first demand is that she needs to marry one of his lieutenants, and he's going to be nice, so she can pick which one, but it's got to be one of, one of these weird, beefy samurai robot dudes.
0: There's a cyber-eye for every girl! The bad boy, the innocent one, the class cloud, the strong, silent type, the hotter-than-hell fire one...
1: Or, to go by their actual names, Craigie G, Greggie C, Leggy P, Chubby Z, and Deep Chris.
0: I love that reference so much, Jay!
1: I I love that show so much. The rest of you can look it up later.
0: Well, anyway, Opal is not a fan of any of these boy band archetypes, and says so, and a woman named Shizuku stands up for Opal to Tatsuo, and then identifies herself to Opal as her birth mother. Wait, her own birth mother? Opal's birth mother. Pronouns are confusing. And- Oh, that's much less shocking. Well, regardless, Portasio does sell Opal's shock and simultaneous hope really beautifully in just a single panel of, wait, what? But
1: Opal doesn't really have time to reconnect with her birth mother, because Tatsuo has decided that Opal needs to learn how to behave properly, so she is going to be running around with good examples of obedient young women.
0: Yeah, and their first task is going to be to go watch the loincloth-clad cyber-eye train.
1: So I saw this written out in the outline, and it took me a couple reads to realize that you meant that they need to go watch the training of the loincloth-clad cyber-eye, not <laughs> a train of loincloth-clad cyber-eye. Um, oh, man. And I, went, I actually went back through a bit of the comic up, and I was like, what? did I, I missed something. I missed something. And no, no, I didn't. I like my version better.
0: Oh, that kind of reminds me of that old show Anarchy game where there was all, like, the the mostly naked, muscly men, and at one point there was a train that was basically made of them, and you had to shoot your lasers from the top of your head at it, and there were fairies that shot their, their fairy dust at them, too, and it was very confusing, and I think pretty homoerotic.
1: I mean, I think ultimately it's more muscle march.
0: Well, there's that, too. It's sort of the same vague feel. But we perhaps digress. Now... The girls that Opal's going along with, they're not fans of Opal talking about the things she doesn't like, and they say so.
1: No manners. She shouts like a herodin.
0: Yes, she does. Go, Opal Tanaka. You are awesome. So she wanders off, Opal, that is, and one of the mostly naked cyberi, this one named Hiro, that's H-I-R-O, despite the fact that the other kind is basically what Simonson's portraying him as, he follows after her and is actually kind of a mostly good dude.
1: Well, at least he thinks that he's got her best interests at heart. What he tells her is that she should play along with Tatsuo because otherwise he'll eventually force her and in the meantime her her young teachers, her companions, will be the ones punished for it. So it's kind of a dick move for her to keep rebelling, which, questionable.
0: Well, it looks like old Opal's got herself into a spot of trouble. But what mean-
1: is this Bastion?
0: <laughs> no, no, it's the Dukes of Hazards sort of.
1: I'm I'm unfamiliar with that, macho.
0: Probably fine. Uh but meanwhile elsewhere in Japan, Iceman and Jean Grey have met up with Mariko Yoshida. That's Logan's ex-fiancée who now runs her own sort of crime sort of legit business family. And
1: Oh, they're a fucking crime family. She just tries to push them in the directions of
0: killing worse guys. Right, so they're, you know, less evil. And this is the first time that Mariko and Jean have met. I think it may also be the first time that Mariko and Iceman have met, but the story doesn't seem to think so, so let's just go along with that.
1: Well, and Mariko and Iceman don't immediately have moments of parallel thoughts about what Wolverine obviously sees in the other as a romantic partner.
0: But I gotta say, as much as this is, like, anti Bechtel test, I do at least appreciate that it breaks the trope of people who are into the same dude, you know, being all jerky to each other. Like, they're both very... Pleased and appreciative and, uh, complimentary.
1: Well, it's not like either of them is is actively involved with him at the moment. It's more like they have an ex in common.
0: I suppose that's true, but, you know, I kind of like it. Well, regardless, Mariko has a plan to get Opal back. They're going to go to this fancy sumo wrestling match that Tatsu and Opal will be at. And at that point, Mariko's ninjas will retake Opal, being all, you know, silent and ninja-y and subtle.
1: And everyone cautions Bobby, no flashy stuff, be smart. We're playing it low-key, we're being subtle, and Bobby reluctantly agrees to this. Quick aside, I really love what a hard-ass Mariko has become.
0: Yeah, you get the impression that she is an extremely effective replacement for her father in that aforementioned criminal empire. I mean, Wolverine saw that steel underneath the softness, and it is on full display right here.
1: Yeah, so they they head to the match, and Opal is playing along with Tatsuo until she's in the crowded match, and then screams for help. Bobby, like the dumbass he is, jumps down to save her, yelling, I have a lot to prove about my heterosexuality, as he dives into battle.
0: And so, Mariko is just infuriated, but she wants to try to make the best of a bad situation, so she sends her ninjas after Bobby, and there's a big grand melee with sumo wrestlers and cyber-eye and ninjas and icemen.
1: But everyone calls the cyber-eye cyberpunks, even though they're not. They're not punk at all.
0: Right. They're cyber-eye. They're cybernetic samurai. And they're cyber-eye, and that's the only thing anybody should ever call them forever.
1: I don't know, I love that they call them cyberpunks, because, like, I'm getting hacker's vibes off of this, and it makes me really happy.
0: It makes me happy, too. So, in the melee, Bobby decides to not, you know, murder one of the dudes he's fighting. He just encases him in ice instead, and our hero, Hero- Which would totally kill a real person! Right, but this is, like, comic book ice, which is totally fine for some reason.
1: Yeah, but I mean, so, so, um, Max on Waiting for the Trade did a strip pretty recently- about how Bobby's powers would absolutely and unquestionably kill people most of the ways that he uses them, and I haven't really been able to get it out of my head.
0: It's a rather good point, but I think to appreciate Iceman as a character and not be horrified by him, we just sort of have to let that one go and assume that things just work differently in the Marvel Universe.
1: In the Marvel Universe, ice is air permeable and not actually that cold.
0: I'm just going to shorten that to, in the Marvel Universe, it's fine. That's it.
1: Should we just call this episode It's Fine?
0: Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what comes no, out when we no, read it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So our hero, Hero, sees Bobby spare this dude and recognizes, hey, this icy guy is actually pretty honorable. I'm gonna face him like a samurai instead of stabbing him in the back or like cybering him in the back.
1: But then it all proves to be in vain because Tatsuo teleports Opal away because he can fucking teleport now!
0: I mean, this was the whole reason that Mariko told Bobby to not jump in, because of teleportation, which, to be fair, I guess maybe she could have mentioned to him at some point, but even so, come on, Bobby Drake, you know better.
1: No, this one is on both of them, because if you know that your opponent can fucking teleport, you tell your comrades going in. This is critical information.
0: It's true, but... The plan has thus failed. I mean, Tatsuo's out of there, he still has Opal, Tatsuo's clan now knows that Mariko's clan have basically gone to war with them, so the element of surprise is totally ruined. It's bad times, and Bobby decides the only way out of this is to just break into Tatsuo's palace single-handedly and rescue her directly. Because that'll go fine.
1: Bobby is like the bad-decision dinosaur of superheroes.
0: He really is. The bad-decision, mildew, wet, uh, trail-leaving the dinosaur of superheroes.
1: God!
0: That's going to go on his business card. That was not awkward phrasing at all and should therefore be immortalized.
1: The thing is, like, I love him and he's awful in this, but he's also just kind of sweet. He's, he's a complete dumbass. He's actually, no, here's the thing. I read Bobby as a teenager, even when he's an adult, I find in contexts like this. So the stuff I'm saying is charming would be charming if he were like 15 or 16. And actually, it's, he's, he's being a total asshole in retrospect.
0: I hear you on the teenager thing, though. Uh, you know who he reminds me of is Richter, especially in the last episode we did, where he goes off to rescue Wolfsbane even though she doesn't need it?
1: Okay, in this case, in Bobby's defense, Opal is actually in trouble. She has actually been kidnapped. She's not just somewhere that he thinks she shouldn't be.
0: Well, where she is is in X Factor number 64, entitled The Price.
1: Man, if I were in X Factor 64, I'd want to be rescued too. But <laughs> I'm
0: Now, Jean lets the enraged Bobby go, but she tells Mariko that Bobby won't be alone whether he knows it or not. And this is strange. I mean, Jean is not usually a very sneaky kind of person. If she has feelings about something, if she thinks somebody's being a dumbass, she usually tells them, right?
1: Yeah, Jean is the lead Kool-Aid man of X Factor.
0: (laughs) That goes on her business card. She
1: will bust down any wall if someone annoys her. Yeah, there's a lot about this dynamic that I'm, I'm iffy on, and again, this kind of, this just, this feels like a weird disconnect in the art and the writing. It, it just feels like the story isn't quite there. It almost feels sort of Mad libsy, just with all of the, all of the components thrown in and the, the way the characters are teamed up.
0: Yeah, well, and as such, Hero finds Opal at her father's grave. And Opal begs Hero to tell her about her parents. He gives in even though he's very much not supposed to.
1: Careful, if you do that too much, you get the high evolutionary.
0: That's a good point. Nobody wants that. But what we do want is the flashback that Hiro tells Opal about. It's really cool. It's portrayed in this sort of aged, frayed panel border. It it almost makes it look like some kind of an old parchment or scroll, which I'm not going to say that makes sense, but it does get across, this happened a long time ago, and it was important.
1: It happened sometime in the Middle Ages, actually. No, sorry, that's a complete lie. It happened like 20-odd some years ago, however old Opal is. That's how long ago.
0: Well, what happened was that Tatsuo wanted to marry his son off for an alliance, but his son hooked up with a rival family's daughter instead, that daughter being Shizuko, you know, Opal's mom, that we met.
1: Shizuko, who by this point was secretly pregnant, went into hiding to avoid Tatsuo's wrath.
0: And she sent her baby daughter away from this shitty life she was in to, as it turned out, the Tanakas in America.
1: Tatsuo's son was married off to a woman he didn't love and later killed in battle. And years later, still from that, Tatsuo found out about Opal, found out he had a potential blood heir, and so sent his, uh, cyberpunks off to capture her.
0: So Opal responds to this in a quite reasonable fashion, saying, Hey, this isn't cool, I want no part of this, I just want to be myself.
1: Also, fuck you. Fuck all y'all. To which Hiro responds, What makes you think that you, a woman,
0: should have the right to do as you wish while I cannot? Yeah, he's tragic, but also kinda sexist.
1: He, I bet I bet hero uses not all men as a hashtag unironically
0: not all cyber eye
1: not all cyberpunks.
0: <laughs> right, but he, he does have very pretty hair. I'll give him that.
1: He does. He has exceptionally pretty hair and a lot of feelings, which goes back to my opinion that the cyber eye should maybe consider leaving crime and reinventing themselves as a boy band.
0: Right. Or they could just, you know, go hang out with Cynthia Nape. She loves feelings, and also biting hands. And their hands are, you know, cyber, so it probably wouldn't hurt as bad.
1: Or they could start a boy band.
0: You know, I think that is the pr- proper choice. All right, Cyber Eye, let's do this thing.
1: Yeah, I think this would be a good plan. They can leave crime, they can become a boy band, and then they can get kidnapped by Mabel Pines. And in fact, we find out on the same page that is actually really qualified for this, because Opal asks him if he, did, you know, didn't he want to be a high-tech ninja? And and it turns out that no, no, Hero wanted to be a poet.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean so he
1: can he can write the lyrics and he can be the sensitive one. Like deep hero.
0: Louis Simonson does uh, seem to be working very hard to make us like Hero. And honestly, if it weren't for that weird little line about how, you know, Opal's a woman and therefore, I kinda would.
1: Well, that and all of the shit he's complicit in.
0: Well, you know, there is that. But it's all about honor. Honor's very complicated as I understand it.
1: Yeah, but he's done a lot of murders.
0: Mm, true. Probably mostly of ninjas. I don't know. But later on, after Opal has gotten the fuck out of this conversation, Tatsuo finds her, trying to escape, and he can't believe that she would even try to get out of this compound.
1: Opal has no time for his bullshit.
0: You think all women are as dumb as that airhead gal pal squad you have around me, but you're wrong. My mother defied you. She tried to save me from all this, and I won't see her sacrifice wasted.
1: Okay, okay, I hear you, Opal, but, um... Gal Pal Squad?
0: We know what that means in X-Men. Yes. <laughs> well, we know so what if- that
1: We know what that means um, in, in cultural subtext in general, honestly. But no, the reason I'm fixating on it is, okay, it's also that, but it's also also the fact that I think that would be a great name for a satirical superhero group like the Bikini Teenagers and Flaming Carrot.
0: It just makes me think of the Teen Girl Squad from Homestar Runner.
1: Yeah, but Gal Pal Squad. And... Um, instead of, you know, having superpowers, they'd have queer subtext, which actually is a superpower, so...
0: There you go. Perfect. Well, Tatsuo correctly figures that Opal probably knows this story because Hiro leaked it. He, you know, snitched about the tale. And so Tatsuo says he's gonna kill Hiro. But very shortly thereafter, when Iceman attacks the fortress, uh, he lets Hiro out, partially as a favor to Opal, and partially because, you know, Hiro's a badass fighter.
1: Hiro also spins a very good yarn about the fact that he told Opal specifically to help Tatsuo's case.
0: Exactly. So, big fight time. The various Cyber-Eye fly forward, but as they're doing so, uh, the two who are going along with Hiro zap him in the back and try to kill him, figuring that the, the Dragon Lord likes him too much, and apparently he's not very trustworthy, so it's time for him to die!
1: He's specifically not trustworthy because he didn't kill Bobby when he had the chance and he cared more about honor than serving his master, and blah blah blah, etc. And obviously he's not actually getting killed here because he has to make some kind of heroic last
0: stand. But again, Louise Simonson is just throwing everything in her toolbox at the story to make Hero as sympathetic as possible.
1: I mean, he is sympathetic, he's just also kind of awful.
0: He can be both. It can be two things.
1: So Iceman manages to save Hiro from his treacherous companions. But it turns out Hiro still has to kill him because honor something something duty things.
0: On the other side of the compound, Jean telekinetically levitates herself, Mariko, and the Yashida ninjas into the compound. They're going to be the second prong of this attack.
1: And they're going to go after Tatsuo, but it turns out they don't need to because they run into Shizuko, who says she's already poisoned Tatsuo's tea... So this should actually resolve the whole conflict, shouldn't it?
0: Well, you would think, but apparently nobody told anybody else what's going on. Specifically, nobody told Hero and Bobby what's going on.
1: So of course they decide that they're going to have some kind of epic fucking duel. Because bros being bros.
0: And Opal, who's been freed by Gene, etc., goes to try to stop the fight. But there's really far too much testosterone going on, so it uh, doesn't work out so well.
1: There's also some equal opportunity semi-nudity as Hiro's armor falls to the ground, leaving him topless.
0: Right, so take a drink. And the context of this, of course, is that they realize they're too evenly matched, and really, they can only have a true fight to show who is the better man, oh, so much machismo, by fighting without powers, and apparently also without shirts.
1: You know, they could resolve all of this with, like, a ruler.
0: (laughs) Pretty much that, yeah. Well, they fight without powers, but those cybernetic things, yeah, those are hard to turn off. So Hero's kicking the crap out of Bobby. Until Opal
1: points out that, in fact, Hero can't turn off his cyber bits, so it's still an unfair fight. And Hero has a long internal angst session and then stops fighting and lets Bobby win to prove to himself that he still has control of himself. He's still got that degree of humanity. So Bobby wins and... Opal and company head out. She tries to get Hero to escape with them, but he declines because Honor and also because the rest of his boy band is still there.
0: So, yeah, that's the end of the story and the end of Louise Simonson's run. We will, however, see Hero and the Cyber Eye again one more time in a story also drawn by Wills Spartacio, that being Uncanny X-Men 289 to 290. In which they
1: play Madison Square Garden and thousands of screaming girls throw themselves- No, Sorry.
0: I mean, not a, they don't
1: actually turn into a boy band. My dreams are in
0: vain. I haven't read that issue in a long time, so I'm going to go ahead and say you're probably remembering it right. But what a weird place to end Louis Simonson's run on. And it does make me think that this was definitely not the plan. It seemed like it must have been a pretty abrupt decision. And from the evidence that's out there, from the interviews that are out there, that does indeed seem to have been the case.
1: And from here, though, she's going to be heading to D.C. And specifically, she's going to be writing a bunch of Superman, including the death of Superman, and once again, working with John Bogdanov, so she's got awesome stuff on the horizon. I wish she could have continued and seen this series through. I wish circumstances at Marvel had been such that it worked for her to do that. We've got, we found um, a 1993 interview in Wizard where Simonson talks some about why she left, and I think popular perception. Now and then was that, it, that the exodus of writers from Marvel had to do with the artists having more control. Um, Simonson said that it was much more an issue with editorial, and specifically with Bob Harris.
0: She says, My problems were really with the editor, who is not handling things well at all. It's up to an editor to choose the people who will work on any given project and to let them know when their services are no longer needed. I think that Bob was not willing to make those decisions. What he did to me, to Chris Claremont, to Peter David, and to Joe Duffy was to nickel and dime us to death. He would change plots and blame it on the artists. He would change dialogue and then say, I'm sorry, but I tried to call you and you weren't home, or I'll be sure and tell you the next time. He would change some of the dialogue, but not other parts so the things people said wouldn't make sense. It was his way of letting you know he was wishing you'd go away.
1: And that kind of ended an era... At Marvel. And this is this is the first major exodus we're going to see from the X line. Um, Claremont's going to follow very, very soon after. But yeah, this is this is the end of Louise Simonson on on the X books for a very, very long time. She started editing them in 1980 and writing them in 1986. So along with Chris Claremont, by this point, she had defined an entire decade of
0: the line. Right. I mean, Editorially, she edited, like, countless books. And I found out the first one she edited was actually Uncanny X-Men number 137, the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga. What a hell of a place to start.
1: Uh, she'd been the writer on the overwhelming bulk, over 50 issues of X-Factor, a ton of New Mutants, the Exterminators miniseries, co-wrote Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. And in terms of influence on the X-Line, I mean, I don't think... Chris Claremont is is undisputedly at the, at the front and center, but there's no one else who is as close to the nucleus and as much part of it as Louise Simonson.
0: Right, I mean, she made freaking Apocalypse. Yeah. Not to mention tons and tons of other characters, but here's to you, Louise Simonson. You've done amazing, amazing things on X-Men, and even though the ending of your run and really Claremont's was a little unplanned and strange, like, what I choose to remember, and I think what most people remember, is the bulk of amazing, amazing stories that went on for years and years and years, and I mean, this was the stuff I read when I was a kid, like... Louis Simonson's run of New Mutants along with Chris Claremont's, the work she did on X-Factor, that shit's in my marrow.
1: This feels like the end of something in ways that even the close of New Mutants didn't.
0: Agreed. Well, it's not quite the end of this episode yet, however, because you've got questions. of Spiders 42 asks on Tumblr, So I've been reading Cable and X-Force recently, and have fallen in love with a grumpy science and pop culture aficionado that is Dr. Nemesis. He's not a character that's popped up very often, as I understand, and so I'm having a hard time tracking down stories he's a part of. What are your recommendations for series to look for that Nemesis is involved in?
1: So I'm going to give you one major recommendation. He's appeared in a lot of other stuff in a more minor role and centrally in some stories. But if you want a series where Dr. Nemesis is front and center, you're going to want X Club. It's a four-issue miniseries written by Cy Spurrier. It is utterly delightful. Nemesis gets a mutant starfish attached to his head that externalizes his inner monologue And, yeah, um, there is also an absolutely splendid one-shot, um, Curse of the Mutants' Smoke and Blood involving Dr. Nemesis and a motherfucking vampire whale, which is drawn by Gabriel Hernandez-Walta and, again, written by Simon Spurrier, and, um, you're not gonna find two better examples of Dr. Nemesis than those. Otherwise, he's all-around astonishing and amazing X-Men, and, um... I'll see if I can track down some more references. Meanwhile, listeners, if you've got a favorite Dr. Nemesis appearance, please drop it in the comments to this episode at explainthexmen.com. So, question number two, let's see. um, What I think is supposed to be there are numbers and letters, but Will20 asks on Tumblr, Hey, so I was arguing with a friend about Magneto's moral alignment. I was thinking true-neutral because I figure it is looking out for them and theirs and no more, which I reckon could apply to him. But then I started second-guessing myself, so I don't know. What's your take?
0: That is an excellent question. Did we, did we cover this ages ago? I don't remember, but I have thoughts about it right now.
1: We talked a lot about the alignment chart in context of uh, Sixus in the video reviews, but I don't know that we've done that much with it on the podcast.
0: Well, regardless, I agree that neutral fits Magneto quite well on the moral axis, but I think he can really vary on the stylistic axis based on his circumstances. At his best, he's lawful neutral. That's when he's more aligned with Xavier. He's trying real hard. At his worst, he can be chaotic neutral. So when he's consumed by anger and gets more, you know, super villainy. Occasionally, he has tried really hard to be just straight-up good, like, for instance, in his headmaster phase, but that was him emulating an alignment, not actually internalizing it.
1: Now, in the Silver Age, his alignment is Silver Age villain, which is a whole other thing and largely performative.
0: Right, that's where you just do evil for evil's sake, and you make damn sure that you have as many speech bubbles describing it as possible. And we actually have a bonus question for you listeners this week.
1: This is sort of a, a synthesis question, because a lot of you have asked about whether and when video reviews are returning. The answer is yes, they are definitely going to be back. We are not yet sure when, because we want to lock down our audio situation first.
0: And then we'll also have to figure out the best format for long-distance video, but I have some ideas. We'll figure it out. We'll talk about it.
1: Um, the Generations Gene Grey and Phoenix one-shot is so rad, though. That's, that's what I'm going to say though, as my current uh, catch-up for the last several months. It's
0: great. I've really been enjoying Generation X. I've wanted a book about the kids for ages, and finally we have one again, and the cast is really well chosen, and I love Vampire Mom Jubilee so much, and it's goddamn delightful.
1: And of course, All-New Wolverine remains superlative.
0: Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with certain tiers of support is thanks on air by a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So, I'm gonna turn it over to everyone's favorite judgmental, angry Claremontian narrator.
1: Oh, Ryan Fitzgerald. Every bit the hero, even now, brought low as you have been. You should have learned a lesson from Joe Mahoney, and left well enough alone. And with that, I believe the mic goes to our favorite sexy, crystal, seductress, Cynthia Nape.
0: It's all feelings. Nothing but feelings. Can't you feel it, Kate Sweeney? Didn't you realize it, David Eby, the moment our eyes met— There's no ends to the pleasure we can share, the transcendent realms we can explore. I can be anything you want me to be, provided what you want is a crystal love vampire, and we can do anything you want, provided you want to tackle a tentacle monster in a realm of incomprehensible unreality. Stay with me, Kate and David, and let's make it really, really weird.
1: Feelings. Well, that was unsettling.
0: And with that...
1: Jay and Miles, Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kurt Lloyd, host of the fun and funny comic book cover story, which you can find on YouTube.
0: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check
1: out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and
0: more. This podcast is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And be sure to come see us at Rose City Comic Con
1: and New York Comic Con. Next week, though, we'll be back with British boarding school hijinks and cheerleading drama.
0: As Kitty Pride enrolls in the girls' school from Hack.